to the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee. It is Friday, April 14th, uh, 2023, and let's start roll. Member Catalano. Here, good afternoon. Member Cunningham-Denning, absent. Vice Chair D'Antonio, absent. Member Friedenbach. Present. Officer Ledbetter, absent. Chair Williams. Present. So we do not have quorum uh, and won't be able to take any votes at this time. Thank you so much. So we're going to start with our land acknowledgement. Here we go. So we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushalone who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As indigenous stewards of this land in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushalone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Awesome. All right. And I want to recognize um, Member Cunningham Denning has arrived. Okay, so with that, we'll move to item two which is the mental health liaison um, draft recommendations. And um, I want to give member Cunningham Denning a moment. Thank you. Welcome. And happy Friday, everyone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, everyone. I'm still trying to catch my breath. No worries. Oh, goodness. It's a long yeah. haul from the parking lot. Goodness gracious. <laughs> okay. Um, mental health liaison team, myself, Mayor um, Friedenbach, Chair Williams, thank you again. Okay, so what is last year's budget? Treatment bed, street response, case management, drop-in services, site acquisition, and DPH allocated cost. Okay, um, so the OCOH objectives for mental health um, extend from racial equity, a wide array of programs to respond to diverse needs, permanent housing and system flow, and bring resources to scale. With racial equity, um, pro to provide culturally competent services that meet the needs of the transgender community, youth and families with children, very important. Um, under um, the wide array of, um, of programs re to respond to those needs, um, to expand street-based services. <clears throat> Excuse me, still trying to catch my breath here. 
um, again, very important, increase residential and drop-in behavioral health treatment services, offer specialized temporary and long-term housing options for people with significant needs, permanent housing and system flow to offer specialized temporary and long-term housing options for people with significant needs. And again, um, how we're gonna bring those to scale is expanding um, street-based services and increase residential and drop-in behavioral health treatment services. Okay, so mental health challenges and opportunities, um, budget shortfall, revenue uncertainty, shortage of mental health clinicians, and the opportunity to deploy a diverse and culturally competent staff working with unhoused people through CBO contracting. Okay, um, now our presentation section, um, mental health priorities and recommendations for the 2024-2025 um, fiscal year. Um, recommended continuing implementation of the FY, which is fiscal year 23 through 24 spending plan using reserves if necessary. Um, dollars have tangible impacts in the community and need them right now to do the work. Recommend ongoing behavioral health care opportunities for people experiencing homelessness. Sustain ongoing and long-term behavioral health care programming that is accessible to people experiencing homelessness. Um, to recommend prioritizing funding and bringing treatment beds to scale. Um, scale the system to meet the need. And recommend prioritizing investments in mental health services for homeless youth, particularly LB, I'm sorry, LGBTQIA plus young people. The needs um, assessment found that homeless youth are even more likely than adults to identify as LGBTQIA+, and a desire for mental health services is desperately needed. Okay. Um, mental health priorities and recommendations. Um, recommend assertive outreach coupled with ongoing case management should remain a high priority to build trust and meet the needs that are visible on the streets. Committee members also suggested that one-time crisis response services are a lower priority than continuous behavioral health care. However, they are all extremely needed across the board. And, okay, I believe that's the last page of this particular recommendation. Again, um, staying the course with the current um, programs as they are is extremely important. I feel as though that is the best way to move forward, especially at this time, even though there is um, a, um, a financial shortcoming with this year's budgetary um, plan from the mayor's office, still, again, those services are extremely needed, especially when it comes to mental health and the intersectionality of being unhoused. Thank you so much, um, Member Cunningham-Denning. We're now gonna go to public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Uh, members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone should call 415-655-0001, access code 2498, 
384-8814, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? <coughs> For the records, there are no phone public comments. All right, thank you. There's no public comment, so we'll move to committee discussion. Um, thanks so much. I think this is really helpful. I do think there's a lot of unmet needs out there around behavioral health, and I'm looking forward to the department's presentation because I believe in this category we have um, some area for some more investments, which would be really cool. And so um, I would love to see, um, I mean, we talked about the TAY, um, and I know that there's a couple of different recommendations around um, behavioral health at the um, TAY-NAF Center that we already fund as a group, um, and um, also um, ongoing clinical um, behavioral health needs for, for TAY um, is one of the HESPA recommendations. Um, and then I would love to um, think about um, maybe adding some co-ops or some other housing options that are ongoing for folks with behavioral health needs. And when we've had a little bit of room in the budget in the past, we've added those in. And basically it's like um, the way the co-ops work for people who don't know, you basically rent or buy a flat and then have a shared caseworker and then people have shared housing and it's more structured for people with more severe behavioral health issues. Um, and currently there's like three different um, programs that run them. I don't know how many co-ops we have right now, um, but um, I know Conard and Baker and Progress all have them. And so that could be if we had a little, I just wanna keep trying to squeeze in some housing wherever we can, um, would be awesome. But I think, um, but thank you so much um, for, um, for this, this is great. Thank you. Any other members? I think I'd wait to hear the department's presentation and then we'll probably have more discussion after that. Wonderful. So with that, um, we'll move to item three, which is the presentation of mental health budget proposals with the discussion and possible action by the committee. Welcome. Director Kirkpatrick. Okay, now I think you can hear me. Um, thank you so much to the committee members and to Member Cunningham-Dunning in particular for your work um, and recommendations uh, for the behavioral health budget uh, for Prop C. Um, the department's proposal, uh, next slide please, for the upcoming two-year budget cycle continues our investment plan approved as part of the prior year budget cycles. We address the significant revenue shortfalls by utilizing one-time funding um, uh, to maintain these service levels through the second year of the budget. Um, that includes balancing shortfalls in the current year and then the um, structural deficit between our spending plan and the revenues in the upcoming two-year budget. There is no new programming proposed due to these projected revenue shortfalls. We have updated program costs and timelines to reflect refined implementation plans. Um, for example, 
Um, if a program we know is going to be delayed in implementation due to kind of site issues or RFP timing, we've shaved off a little bit of cost but kept the fully annualized amount in the second year of the budget. Or if, as we've scoped budgets, our team has said, at, in order to deliver 10 TAY residential care beds, we need more than the 700,000. We need closer to a million um, to deliver on that service level. So it was, what do we need to maintain the service levels we've committed to? So that those were the shifts reflected in the budget. We do also assume a cost of living increase in line with um, the inflation assumptions that the city makes um, for our five-year um, financial projection. Next slide. Um, our goals over the coming year in alignment, I think, and with many of the committee's goals, um, include implementing our Prop C funded initiatives, uplifting equity as a priority across these key following program areas. Um, a, and this is, I, we did discuss these in February, happy to answer any more in-depth questions for you, but wanting to uplift some of the equity elements related to the office of coordinated care. We will be focusing on expanding our targeted support for justice-involved individuals um, and expanding follow-up care for people um, exiting 5150 holds. Um, as we all know, unfortunately, um, uh, these um, uh, populations uh, disproportionately include communities of color, um, and so really augmenting and stepping up that work addresses those equity priorities to really um, help triage and connect um, people in crisis or exiting crisis after stabilization into the next level of um, care and support. Um, we will be pursuing the opening this year of 100 residential care and treatment beds, reaching our um, goal of um, 400 beds. Actually, today we just announced that we contracted with HealthRate 360 for 70 of the residential um, care beds. And so we, with that, once those are fully open, they will ramp up a little bit over the coming months. But we'll have achieved the 350 um, beds, new beds open, and the majority of those are all funded by Propsy. Since we're making great headway um, in opening our bed goal, um, we will be working to um, implement the Mental Health Service Center, um, expanded hours uh, for clients at the Behavioral Health Access Clinic, the BHS Pharmacy, and our Office of Buprenorphine Induction Clinic um, serves clients who are often experiencing homelessness, um, and older clients and uh, clients of color are overrepresented in our clients at um, the Behavioral Health Access Center. Um, as it relates to um, the street crisis response team, we will be strengthening the street-based outreach and linkage to case management as a part of the reconfigured street crisis response team, so really supporting that connection um, to expand a neighborhood-based street-level behavioral health support and engagement post-behavioral health crisis, overdose follow-up, and linkage to clinically appropriate behavioral health and medical care. Um, we will be ex continuing to expand our overdose prevention services for clients at risk of overdose, including uh, medicated uh, assisted medications for addiction treatment, contingency management, and extended hours at our substance use disorder clinics. Key goal of our overdose prevention plan is reducing the overdose disparity among black African-American residents in San Francisco. So this really helps um, support our equity goals and uh, closing those disparities. Um, we will be um, 
uh, launching the behavioral health component of the FACTS program, which is the physical, I, I'm apologies, I don't ever remember what the acronym is. I should, probably shouldn't admit that. That's the physical health and behavioral health and permanent supportive housing um, that we are doing in partnership with HSH. And at the beginning of this fiscal year, next fiscal year, we expect to have those services launched. The physical health element of the program is currently serving 69 PSH buildings, um, which has more than 5,000 residents. And then our case management expansion is a part of this as well. Um, we have uh, issued, I believe, or will be imminently um, an RFP for intensive case management services um, uh, with uh, a focus on culturally congruent care um, and serving um, underserved communities as a priority for that new money. Um, and then I think finally, um, we are beginning our expanded peer navigation and behavioral health services for Tay and transgender clients. The Prop C budget supports an annualized approximately $3 million for dedicated Tay services, including Tay residential care coordination and mental health services, as well as $1 million in um, dedicated transgender um, behavioral health support. And those are all maintained in our proposed budget. Probably already at my 10 minutes, so I'll hopefully move quickly, but I know that the programmatic outlines and goals are important for all of us. Um, on the next slide, this is just showing you in the um, black box the upcoming two-year budget. Our expenditure plan is about $100 million a year. Um, the ongoing revenue for mental health is closer to $75 million, and we're able to balance the budget you'll see by utilizing um, one-time sources, which is largely our Prop C reserves that we budgeted last year as well as prior year underspending. So the takeaway from this slide is we are able to balance the upcoming, well, this current year and the upcoming two-year budget utilizing one-time sources, but as the next slide will show, there is still very persistent long-term um, uh, structural deficit um, given the approximately $100 million spending plan and the approximately $80 million in revenue. So it's about a $25 million or 25% um, uh, kind of structural shortfall um, as we think about spending. Um, and then I did want to address um, our acquisition fund. So there is approximately $130 million not included in, these, in this table as our one-time acquisition fund. Um, I wanted to provide a little more specificity. Next slide, please. On the, on the projects that we do have planned um, for that funding. So as I've shared with you all before, we're in active negotiations for acquisition and or construction of about three to five buildings. So. Um, to meet our remaining bed goal, either and, and or transition contracted beds into city-owned facilities in county, we are able to have achieved, um, you know, 350 of our 400 bed goal um, with um, most of the beds contracted and some of them being out of county. So one of our goals is to bring that capacity in county and stabilize um, those services um, and have people close to their communities. Um, so, so those more specificity for those three to five buildings, we are negotiating for in-county facilities for Tay Residential, board and care, um, and dual diagnosis. We are searching for a permanent location for the managed alcohol program, which is currently leased. Um, we are in pre-development planning for um, a development on Treasure Island um, connected to that residential step-down expansion due to redevelopment on the island. The current 
Um, beds that we're locating there that we announced today will have to transition to new buildings, so we'll be leveraging Prop C among many other sources, state funding, bond funding. Almost all these projects that we're looking at are trying to leverage all the state money available, local bond money, really trying to leverage, but even still with that, we also will have costs related to a, pen, a potential site for a mental health service center. Um, and we did acquire um, the Hyde Geary site, which will be our future um, crisis diversion unit um, or crisis stabilization unit. And there's additional capital funds needed um, to bring that up to um, that level of care uh, that we'll have at that building. So with that on the next page is kind of some estimates and bookends. As I mentioned in our previous meeting, I didn't wanna put exact cost estimates with each of those buildings I'd outlined, just given that we're negotiating on the private market for many of these. Um, but, you know, for an example, um, if we were to locate, you know, 300 beds in county at a range of either 300 to 500,000 per bed, that would be about 9,250 million dollars in need for capital funds. Um, I would also add that, given the citywide economic outlook, that these funds could be utilized to address. Prop C ongoing operating shortfalls or rebalancing needs in future years, given that structural deficit. Uh, however, our priority at, at this time is still trying to really secure those stable buildings in county um, to support the expansion of residential care um, and treatment. So with that, my presentation is done, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Director Kirkpatrick. We're going to open up to the committee, starting with uh, Member Cunningham-Denning. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, if we could, um, if you could just give more clarity again to the one hundred and three million dollars that you are, um, am I correct? One hundred and three million dollars that you have um, in your, um, is it the? Can you can you um, visit revisit that one more time for me, please? Absolutely, it's mm -hmm. approximately one hundred and thirty million. One hundred and thirty million of one-time funds set aside for acquisition and rehabilitation of uh, residential care and treatment and other behavioral health facilities. Per the slide uh, that I outlined, Jesse, if you could go back to the the four, that one, oh, one before that, yeah, that one that would help us buy buildings for these related services, numbers one through four oh. here. So trying to buy a building to locate the TAY program, mm -hmm. trying to buy buildings um, in county for board and care, locate a permanent, <laughs> lo have a permanent location for managed alcohol, um, provide the costs for um, the 70 residential step-down beds on Treasure Island, and then um, a potential mental health service center um, building acquisition as well. So those three to five buildings, depending on how things could be grouped together, um, you know, they're all significant capital outlays and the bookends that we gave were the 90 to 50 million if we were to be successful to purchase um, all of those buildings. Um, what is the time frame um, that you're looking at currently for completion of the acquisition of those buildings? <laughs> as soon as possible. I feel like a broken record up here. Um, you know, there's a lot of barriers for us for behavioral health buildings because it's not just housing. And I know housing in and of itself is still difficult to achieve in the city. But we have the additional layers of meeting state licensure requirements for egresses and fire standards and, you know, all those kinds of things and trying to make sure that we... Um, 
different clients have different needs depending on their acuity, so it's not like we can just mix everybody in one building. We have to take into consideration kind of the programmatic um, goals of the programs as well, trying to make sure that clients can be successful in the same setting. Some people need can thrive in a large environment, some need small environments, so it really is. So all that to say, we are hoping as soon as possible um, to do all of these. Like I said, we are in active negotiation. There are letters of intent, like we are applying for state grants. We are trying as fast as we can, but there are, there are significant barriers that have delayed us in spending this money. Hmm. Member Friedenbach. Oh, I think you're first. Our member Catalano. Can, um, thank you. Director Kirkpatrick, so two questions. One is um, about the breakdown of the only sort of permanent housing with care that I saw on that list was um, board and cares. And so I just wanted to confirm if that's correct. I know Member Friedenbach mentioned co-ops and other models that might be actually a permanent um, home for folks that need that level of care. So if you could speak to that. And then if you could also speak to the ongoing operational costs um, for those new buildings and to what extent those would be they're currently in the proxy budget because they're contracted out, and to what extent there would be additional needs for ongoing operations costs? Great question. Um, uh, I, there's the difference between the intention of longevity of stay of clients and how long clients do stay, stay in care. Our goal is to have people be at the lowest level of care you know, as is appropriate for them. So many of our, we kind of have a continuum of beds in our um, residential care program here. So we have every, the highest level of acuity are our locked subacute treatment beds. Um, people can stay for multiple years. The goal is to step them down into those lower levels of care. Um, but for many of these people can stay two to five years, our boarding cares, our locked subacute, um, our skilled nursing facilities, um, uh, and those tend to be in the multi-year stays. So those would be on the longer end. Um, our co-ops um, are um, designed as more transitional, although I think due to outflow issues, they do function a bit more um, in the PSH realm. Um, uh, so if on our continuum, I would say those are the most akin um, to those programs, as well as board and care. People do tend to stay due to kind of flow needs um, uh, and capacity for step down. Uh, your second question, um, we have factored in um, to our planning that we would um, kind of uh, bring the operating dollars for any contracted beds out of county with them if we were to purchase a building in county to locate them. There would be modest savings potentially um, for uh, uh, not having to pay kind of lease costs. Um, however, that might be offset by higher cost of doing business in the city and county, and that's a trade-off I think that we might um, make to have people located closer to their communities. Thank you. That was really helpful. Just a follow-up question on the co-ops and board and cares. Is there sort of an optimal number um, that you would, understanding you have to navigate all of the building yeah. specificities? Is there an optimal number of that type of resource? Oh, per building? Like uh, No, across all of the acquisitions. Okay, so our current bed um, uh, expansion plan, the 400-bed plan, um, was informed by a study done in 2020. Um, I think that um, Tipping Point might have helped fund um, the bed optimization report. Um, and so we informed our expansion of these number of beds plus some based on that. We are redoing the bed optimization study right now. Um, and so we will have kind of our next 
um, goal and numbers. Unfortunately, it's, I don't have it now. The analysis is beginning now, and we're hoping, I believe, late summer, uh, uh, fall, um, to have um, that you know new look at where is the need in our system to inform the, the next grouping of beds. I had a question. Remember Go ahead, Buck. Go ahead. Um, I had a question about programming um, for the and staffing. That's like my jam. At capacity for managing these programs. Can you just speak a little bit about where you're at in terms of staffing capacity for managing this expansion? Mm -hmm. Um, great question, and thank you. Um, we have definitely um, uh, modestly grown our team. I'm here. I've been at the department for two years now to kind of um, help support the um, implementation of Mental Health SF. We've reorganized over the last three years um, key departmental staff and added um, modest staff, but a lot of reprioritization of existing staff. I feel like our infrastructure of our own um, uh, uh, implementation staff at DPH, um, I think we're on a good course. I would say we do experience the um, overall staffing kind of delays and shortages that we do across the city. Um, it is difficult to hire analysts, um, and it takes time in the city to do that. Um, I would also say that um, across more of the like um, client-facing programs, our case management services, our clinical services, um, as well as even some of our residential care and treatment, that we do feel the pinch of kind of the behavioral specific behavioral health clinicians and health workers. Um, we're having a special special difficulty hiring um, in that in those specific fields. So we've been working with the controller's office um, on an analysis of what are the barriers for both nonprofit and civil service for those specialized clinician and health worker positions to help us understand the barriers and recommendations about how to overcome those. And those will be coming out in the next couple of months and really inform our approach to delivering um, on, on services. Now, I, I will say, uh, those will likely take time, but it's um, really helpful to, um, they've done a deep dive looking at other counties. They've talked to many different um, CBO organizations, doing deep dives into our HR processes. So I think we'll have a much better sense of some of those specific recommendations for clinical and frontline staff in the coming months. It'll be really valuable to inform in future spending plans. I just say that because I know our last conversation about retention of folks within these spaces and just um, could you speak a little bit to um, just training and support for the current staff as well like what is being put in place so that folks feel safe so that folks are not opting out based on the what's happening within these spaces it's a great question and really valuable one. And unfortunately, I don't feel like the expert here to fully represent the depth and breadth of the work that our um, HR and DEI um, support uh, provide to um, city staff. But I do know that it is a huge priority. Um, you know, last um, March, the department, um, as a year ago now, um, had 
rallied all HR support we had behind our behavioral health team. We hired over 200 dedicated behavioral health team staff, knowing that this was such a critical need. There were important lessons learned and process improvements from that that will help us going forward. Um, but I do know that retention is a key piece, and that is something that the controller's office analysis is also looking at. It's kind of the multi-phase, like how do we improve the pipelines? How do we improve the actual hiring process? And then how do we maintain staff once we've hired them? both for civil service and for nonprofit, um, knowing that that's important across kind of the continuum of the staffing spectrum. So more to come on that. And I'm sorry I don't have a more um, specific list, although I know our teams are working really hard on those questions. No worries. It's a big question that I know a lot of people are <laughs> grappling with. So I want to move to the um, street crisis mm -hmm. team and um, just want to talk a little bit more about that in terms of um, protocols and makeup of the teams that are out there and a critical role for improving the state of our city. Can you just talk a little bit about what's happening there? Who is leading those efforts? What are some of the things that are being put in place so folks are trained and have um, the support they need to be able to address the crisis, the very real crisis on our streets? Absolutely. I will um, give a, a cursory summary to that. I definitely welcome um, uh, either our um, SCRT and street crisis and all of our street teams. We could do a deep dive later um, with the committee um, on, on all the work that we're doing um, for that. Um, but a brief answer. Um, so um, the city is consolidating our street crisis response team as well as our street wellness response team. The fire department will be lead on those SCRT, reconsolidated SCRT oper uh, operations, and they will no longer include um, a DPH contracted health rate 360 behavioral health clinician in the initial response. Um, instead, clinicians will provide <coughs> follow-up care to people with complex needs. This includes expanded efforts in neighborhood-based street level behavioral health support and engagement post-behavioral health crisis support, overdose follow-up, and linkage to clinically appropriate um, uh, medical care. So as a part of this transition, DPH plans to deploy neighborhood-based teams of clinicians and peer health workers through our Office of Coordinated Care to perform that intensive street-based care. Um, and it's a little more detail on the things I just outlined. Increased follow-up care and care connections for people seen by the SCRT team, those with recent hospitalizations and other um, high-risk crises, proactive and coordinated street care for people with mental health challenges and substance use disorders um, to, uh, in order to avert an SCRT call and connections to behavioral health and physical health care is key to all of that. So that to say, we have... Um, uh, uh, these dedicated um, behavioral health clinicians and peer work, um, DPH is supporting the, that element of the SCRT follow-up work. I think our Office of Coordinated Care is providing a great backbone um, to expand upon that care coordination that's vital for those. We also have the street overdose response team um, funded through Propsy. And I know that there are other teams. We have street medicine, of which Propsy is also supporting that. So um, as one department, um, we are really meeting kind of the overarching um, uh, uh, kind of backbone structural support. We are also highly coordinating with our city partners, um, continuing to partner with uh, Department of Emergency Management, HSH, um, as well as the fire department to support kind of the network of street-based teams. Again, 
I don't feel like I am doing full justice to the like level of detail and nuance for these programs, but happy to provide kind of detailed follow-up as um, appropriate and helpful for your recommendations. Thank you, Member Cunningham Denning. Yes, thank you. Um, Chair Williams, you literally snatched those questions right out of my brain. <laughs> so I wanted to return back to that particular strategy, the outreach strategy that is in place um, with meeting this particular need. Just I want to for my own edification. Um, the initial, like the initial interaction between DPH, as it were, and the respondent, like the the part the participant or the community member, um, is done by fire and rescue, or is was that correct? Yeah, yeah. They are. I forget the exact name. Hold on, it's somewhere in here. They are. Um, it is the fire department, a community-based EMT, as well as a DPH-supported peer. Okay. Um, so the teams had previously been a community-based EMT, a peer, as well as a behavioral health clinician. And um, the initial response is now just going to be the EMT. And the, the peer will still be there, which is a behavioral health um, peer. And then the clinicians are following up so that they can have that more in-depth follow-up that we felt was needed in order to better meet the needs and better kind of um, support the um, the immediate response needs that um, it was kind of coupled, right? There's that immediate crisis and then the need for the follow-up and connection and the more prolonged kind of support for individuals. And so it was kind of um, just decoupling those while still maintaining the services. So we are still going to provide that critical behavioral health clinical support um, as follow-up, but not just at the same kind of immediate um, response. Okay. Uh, Member Friedenbach. Thank you. Um, do you know how many of the clinicians that were originally signed to skirt stuck around to do the follow-up stuff? I do not know okay. that. Our IWG, sorry, the Mental Health SF Implementation Working Group, which provides really detailed recommendations and programmatic um, uh, uh, oversight for the programs, has, has been diving more deeply into the SCRT um, reconfiguration. And I apologize that I don't, I don't know readily know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard from a f that a few of from a few of them that they were really upset about the change and they bailed and they're looking for jobs out of county. I know part of this was that to try to, because we have a clinician shortage and to try to capture some of those folks. I don't know that that really, um, I don't know that they were really engaged in that process um, for those decisions to be made. Um, and I don't know that um, input was really gathered effectively from unhoused people on their interactions. Um, I know from our work and our monitoring, the cultural competency of the fire department is often uh, challenged. I'm trying to think of how to say it politely. Um, and um, that's a huge expenditure, and it's really expensive. And um, we're, you know, it's really good to move from a police response, but I think the, I think the framing should be moving from you know, police are an institutional response to a community response. And if we're moving from one institution that's uniform to another uniformed institution, um, a lot of the negative 
um, and ineffic like ineffectiveness of the police get carried over there. And a lot of the culture between the police and the fire are honestly very similar um, in the way they talk to people and the way they treat people. Um, not all of them, um, just like not all police, but I've just been monitoring a lot of um, really negative um, interactions with fire personnel. Mm. Every once in a while, they're great. Um, but the kind of things that I see are things like saying things like, I don't speak Mexican, like calling my staff the N-word, like speaking to women in a really inappropriate ways and touching them, um, white men calling black women sister in like this really weird, swarmy way. I could go on and on. But I, I just, I, I'm, I have some serious concerns with that, like... <laughs> I'm not the. I understand why the decision was to take up the clinicians. The peers are still there, which is fantastic. Uh, the peers, from what I've heard, are the best trained out of the three of the team in terms of how to do this stuff. Because a lot of the clinicians, because of the clinician shortage, there was a lot of clinicians that were brought in that didn't have as much experience as the peers did. Um, but I do, I do have some some concern there. Uh, I also wanted to just kind of um, dig down a little bit on the. Um, well, I don't know if there's other comments on this topic. I had a different topic I wanted to shift to, but uh, maybe I'll just pause for a second. Thank you so much, Member Friedenbach. I want to recognize that Vice Chair D'Antonio has arrived, and then go to Member Cunningham-Denning. Uh, thank you again. <clears throat> um, I just want to first start off by um, concurring with Member Friedenbach in regards to um, a need for sensitivity training um, with those particular um, entities that are taking on this task. My question was going to be in regards to um, the individuals that are partaking in this um, this activity, the out, the field outreach. Um, are is there um, like protocol in place um, to make sure that the those particular um, individuals have been properly trained um, with cultural sensitivity, things of that nature. As Member Friedenbach stated earlier, I have also heard um, of instances where, um, coming from the TGNC, transgender non-conforming community, where people are misgendered, um, dead names are, you know, um, given. Those are um, really disparaging things to encounter when you're in the mindset of like receiving assistance, especially when you're dealing with a mental health issue. Um, so that's what my question was going to be um, to, to just really um, maybe if at a later time, if we could meet with um, the leaders of that team um, so that we could maybe um, figure out exactly what types of strategies are being implemented um, you know, to prepare for those particular endeavors. Because, um, you know, again, as Member Friedenbach has stated, these are things that I have heard from various community members from the TGNC community that feel as though if they are supposed to be receiving some type of assistance, you know, that's, um, that's a barrier to receiving that um, assistance adequately, especially when you know when, you, when it puts a, a bad taste in your in your mouth when it comes to um, city run organizations and offices that are supposed to be helping the community. I have a question, Vice Chair D'Antonio. 
Um, thank you. Yeah, uh, I probably missed this. You guys probably already went over this. My bad. Um, but the group of firefighters who are going out, or fire department who's going out and doing this, is this voluntary, or are they, like, is it just, like, do they, do the firefighters themselves decide, I want to be part of this group that goes and does outreach, or they're just sending whoever to do it? Because I could see firefighters, just like police officers who were like, this is not my job, feeling, there's like a psychological thing there. They don't want to be there, so why would they be treating people with dignity and respect if they don't even feel like that's their job? So maybe there's a way to make it more of like a volunteer thing, firefighters who do want to go out and do that work, because I don't think we should just be sending people who don't feel like that's their job. I just want to add to that that this is the front line of a crisis in our city. So I think what you're hearing right now is a lot of passion because it's so critical for us to address everything that we're talking about amongst this committee. And I think we have to pay extremely deep attention to this part of the work because this is our front line to everything else within our system. Yeah. And as you just heard, you know, the, the cultural humility and everything that needs to be in place for this work is extremely critical. So Director Kirkpatrick, I know we just hit you with a lot. And everybody's <laughs> looking amazing up here. And we know it's um, not your department. I know. <laughs> like two and a half years in. And but there are a lot of people. It's a lot. lot in San Francisco. <laughs> but I just want to stress yeah. the importance of this because I'm a San Francisco native, Fillmore raised, and I see it on my street every day when I walk out my door. I have never seen anything like this in my entire life living here in the city. So the street response, the street crisis team has to be super on point. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna keep it like that. So Director Kirkpatrick. I appreciate hearing from all of you. Um, and I, I do, I, we're doing these deep dives at our Mental Health SF Implementation Working Group. Um, so if there's some way that we can kind of um, uplift your priorities. I know we've heard similar, if not the same, through that um, body as well. And of course, we will take this back to the department. I, I you know, um, uh, cultural sensitivity, um, uh, you know, leading with a, an equity and inclusion lens is paramount to all the work that DPH does. Um, and so I, I definitely appreciate and recognize that priority and we'll take it back to the department as we partner with the fire department and others on our uh, continued street uh, work together. But just a little far, further, like why was the fire department selected in this role? Uh, the SCRT was formed almost three years ago, I think, um, and and it is that the roles that um, that uh, the team vehicles will consist of um, will be a community. I got it wrong earlier. I found it. Community paramedic, an EMT, and a peer counselor or outreach worker. Um, and so to delve into the um, kind of philosophies of, uh, you know, crisis response and behavioral health. I don't feel equipped to be the person to speak to that, um, to truly represent them, you know, the intentions and goals. Um, but I recognize that it's not adequate either to just say that. So I do think we do need to find a way to connect um, on these kind of programmatic questions that I, our parallel body is also really um, diving deeply into as we speak. Thank you. Member Cunningham, Cunningham, Denny. Thank you. My last question. I apologize. I don't. In this speech, I feel no. like I have my is brain your, is exploding. Area. This is your area. This is your area. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, re <thank> <laughs> in regards to um, 
the diversity reflected in the in the staff. I know that um, Chair Williams did speak about earlier um, the hiring process, or you spoke about the hiring process and things of that nature. That you need to get more information about, you know, um, those particular areas. However, um, I do know of members in the TGNC community that have recently obtained positions. Um, with with other um, with various programs within DPH, um, I believe it's I believe one of them is called um, trans. I'm sorry, something. My brain is literally full of a thousand um, different CBOs and other programs and things that are running in the city. Um, of course, as someone who works in direct services, I have to have you know um, that information readily available in my brain. Unfortunately, there's only very little in space. So um, back to my question, because um, I did hear something in regards to turnover. Um, again, um, the, my previous statement, um, knowing individuals who have recently been hired um, to work with programs, especially transgender, serve, um, transgender serving communities um, within DPH, um, like, what is the strategy around retention of those employees? Do you know that information? I do not readily know it. However, I feel like I'm doing a disservice knowing that the department is, has a whole office dedicated towards this work. Um, and so we can get back to you all on the, <coughs> you know, um, work that our um, uh, DEI um, uh, and, and DHR work are constantly collaborating on. I recognize the importance the department does as well, and I want to do due justice um, to the work that we are doing in that important area. Yeah, because I do believe that um, the mission that DPH has in regards to um, reflecting the community through its staff is extremely important, especially when you're talking about empowering communities, um, the African-American community as well as the transgender community, extremely empowered by those particular measures. Um, with employing people who reflect the communities that are being served by those entities is, again, extremely empowering. I just want to make sure um, that I do understand the measures that are in place in regards to retention um, for those individuals because, you know, going back to, um, you know, like the view from the community itself, um, seeing, um, or if you hear like word of mouth, like an entity or an agency um, that has a high turnover, especially when it comes to um, the TGNC community, people start to wonder why it is that you know they have a they have an issue with maintaining retention with that community in those places. I, um, I want to say. Three or four years ago, I left a, a nonprofit agency that I worked for. Love them, still work with them today. Um, but and during my exit interview, I did mention to them, um, even though you are a wonderful agency, the way that you um, prioritize your transgender employees is not really empowering. And in order for myself as an individual to feel as though I'm not only empowering myself but my community as well, I have to be able to know that there's stuff of growth or movement or something of that nature. And investment in those particular um, community members is extremely important because there are diamonds everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, we just have to look for them. Um, 
and you know, then I watched out the door. However, well, I picked up my last check, then I watched out the door. <laughs> but I want to make sure <laughs> that the um, that the th my point that I'm making is that there is a strategy in regards to making sure that those particular community members that are employed, you know, with DPH, that there is a strategy in regards to making sure that they are, you know, um, continue to be empowered in regards to those positions, and that there is areas and ways that they can move and you know things of that nature again that's something that for that's a that's a discussion for another day but again you don't have access to that information at this time but if there is a way that i could meet with someone or maybe we could have a meeting or something to get more information in regards to that particular strategy it would be greatly appreciated absolutely mm -hmm. thank you so much director kirkpatrick in the interest of time we're going to move to public comment and then move to our next item so oh, secretary oh, I, I just got one i just had that oh, one that i was remember Friedenbach. Sorry. sorry no worries just just real quick so um on uh on the um slide 11 so the treatment beds includes all the um with the chart that includes basically all of the beds like all of the co-ops and boarding cares and all that kind of stuff, right, in, the, in that budget update. Um, I don't know what slide 11 is, but it does include... Budget update, yeah. Oh, the big one, yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. Um, approximately 35 million, um, includes our drug sobering center, locks of acute treatment beds, skilled nursing facility beds, boarding care, Tay Residential, our Crisis Stabilization Unit, our Managed Alcohol Program, our Residential Step Down, Co-op okay. Housing, basically everything that's on the bed dashboard. On the bed dashboard, um, okay, More or less. There are two programs on there that are general fund funded. Hummingbird okay. Valencia is general fund funded, which is on the bed dashboard, and the dual diagnosis beds are general fund funded. Okay, great. And so the... Um the basically the um so in sli the slide 13 is the new beds and facilities acquisition progress and you have like four um the four points there plus the crisis stabilization mm -hmm. so are those the items that make up the bookends on the next slide the 90 to 150 million yeah okay if we estimated for those buildings kind of if if each bed costs between 300 and 500 thousand that would be about 90 to 150 million to to purchase those buildings okay because one of the things that i'm looking at that I've, I've been i've kind of had my eye on for a while um that's is the mental health service center because it it i'm just not it doesn't feel real like that's actually moving moving anywhere and i just feel like if we're if there's things that are kind of softer and maybe not happening that maybe there's stuff we could use with that money right now mm -hmm. and that's why i was mentioning the co-ops um because that's like a quick thing that we can add um, bed and then we can use medical dollars for the support services probably and for the operating going on and so that that's kind of one of the things that i was looking at like thinking how real is that and then the other one was the um the um, drop-in center i believe we have some dollars for that and whether that was just because it's it's been a few years now that that money's just been kind of sitting there. I know we expanded the hours at 1380 Howard, but the the big chunk of money set aside for that before beyond that has has not moved. Uh, yeah, there were a couple of questions um, within that. So um, we had budgeted, I think, the current mental health service center funding, which includes the behavioral health access center hours of expansion, the OBIT clinic hours of expansion, and our behavioral health. 
uh, pharmacy, that's about $4 million in the budget. There had been an additional $2 million set aside for a future expansion of the Mental Health Service Center in the prior year budget. However, that was reduced in the board phase of the budget last year to pay for the additional um, dual diagnosis transitional care beds for women in the Bayview. Yeah. Um, so there, we are planning to fully expend the Mental Health Service Center funding as budgeted. Um, because there isn't, we reduced that line item by two million last year in the budget, so there's oh, not extra there. I, I was speaking to the acquisition part of that. Oh, the acquisition piece. Yeah. Of it. Okay. Um, as for the acquisition for a potential mental health service center, um, we are in active negotiation on a building. Okay. Um, there is an LOI um, on a building, and we are working. Um, we've applied for state money. Um, so there is a building that we are looking at for the Mental Health Service Center okay. um, building at this time. But okay. So we're, in that, you... we're in that limbo phase where we're still trying to figure out if it's real, if it can meet our needs, if the costs will align with what we can leverage all the various sources um, to bear. But there is there is a building. Okay, great. So when, when in preparation for the liaison meeting that's coming up next week for mental health, uh, maybe that could just be something that you can explore with the acquisition around is there money in there that is a little bit softer and maybe not moving forward that we can try to try to squeeze in some more housing so that was what I was kind of referring to it at the beginning so okay. I, w I just wanted to prep you know like let you know that I was I'm going to bring that up at that meeting yeah thank you, thank so, you so much, much. member Friedenbach and thank you so much to Red Kurt Patrick for being in the hot seat these amazing advocates <laughs> and taking all our questions and thank you for your partnership um, we're going to move now to public comment. Uh, Director Shimon. Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. Nice. Hi. 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 You're our first member of the public, public commenter in person. Oh, I'm, I'm here all day. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. um, my name is Marnie. I use she, her pronouns, uh, division director for Larkin Street Youth Services. I'm also co-chair of HESPA and the chair of the TAY subcommittee for HESPA uh, and a bunch of other things. Um, so sorry to harp on skirt. I just want to speak really briefly to that um, on behalf of youth who are in crisis. Um, fire department is a uniform um, very reminiscent of law enforcement, um, and there's a huge power dynamic, particularly with youth of color and trans youth and queer youth um, who are in crisis. It makes no sense why a DPH clinician wouldn't be first line. Um, it also sets up um, a huge barrier in terms of an additional step when a clinician has to follow up, particularly with youth who are in crisis and homeless. Um, it just seems completely backwards. Um, it fosters um, mistrust. Um, our youth tell us this, uh, and that power dynamic and that uniform, and the uniform is um, a complete barrier. Also, what happened to CART? Um, community um, is loudly calling for CART. What the heck happened to it? Um, so, uh, in terms of, uh, I love you guys, DPH. Um, I was at your budget presentation yesterday. Um, the mayor's top priorities are reducing homelessness um, and reforming mental health services in San Francisco. So with a city that is a $500 million reserve, it, any kind of, is that my time? Am I No, up? keep going. Um, makes no sense that even service cuts would even be thought about. Um, and I just have to talk about the, um, I'll be up here again, but the intersection with housing and mental health in terms of Tay, 
Um, 80% of the youth who we serve in the Tay Homeless System of Care are youth of color. 50% are queer. So in terms of equity, um, there is a huge need. Um, the uh, HSH just um, posted an RFP for 24-7 drop-in services at the Tay Nav on Post Street. Um, they have, there's no public dollars for clinicians at the Tay Nav, and 90% of their youth that drop in um, or at the NAV are in severe need of clinical services. So if you're going to um, fund 24-7 drop-in at that location, you've got to bolster that with clinical services. Definitely. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for being our first I'll public commenter ever in person. <laughs> thank you. You get that honor. Um, any other public comment? Secretary, our Director Shimon. For the records, there are no additional in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone should call 415-655-0001, access code 2498-384-8814, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? For the record, there are no phone public comments. This concludes the public comments section for this agenda item. Thank you so much, Director Shimon. We're going to now move to Director... Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Gigi. <laughs> Good afternoon, Chair Williams, members of the committee. Um, I'm Gigi Whitley, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Deputy Director of Admin and Finance for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I'm joined by my colleagues, her Chief Deputy, Noelle Simmons, our Budget Director, Christine Rowland, and also wanted to mention Ann Romero's here from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development if you have questions about their aspect of, of what I'll be presenting. Um, next slide, please, Jesse. So uh, I'm here today to talk to you about our proposed um, budget plan, expenditure plan for the next two fiscal years. And I know you're seeing this for the first time, so really looking forward to um, your additional input. Um, the expenditure plan continues uh, what this committee approved and the board adopted in last year's budget. It also tries to address some of the revenue shortfalls in the prevention and shelter services by using one-time fund balance to maintain service levels and bed capacity through the two-year budget. Um, there is some additional um, better news than we heard in November from uh, the controller's office. They provided um, better revenue projections in March, um, which they presented to all of you. And we've applied some of those one-time funds for additional acquisition and capital improvements. Uh, like the Department of Public Health, we're proposing um, cost of living increases for ongoing programs so we keep pace with inflationary pressures. And, um, you know, our, our new uh, citywide strategic plan was released today. We're very excited that some of those uh, goals have been incorporated in this plan. Um, this plan, though, does limit the expansion of short-term housing subsidies to remain within the 12% funding cap um, per the, the ordinance. Next slide. 
so I'll start with the adult or general housing investments we're proposing. Again, it's going to look very familiar to you all um, of the last year's fiscal year 23-24 investment plan, but we have made adjustments for updated costs as well as um, the pace of implementation. Uh, we have added a few new strategic investments to expand housing and improve system quality, which is one of our strategic goals. Um, we're proposing in this budget to launch an adult shallow subsidy program of 60 slots per year starting next fiscal year. Uh, to improve system quality, we're also proposing a money management program for our PSH tenants um, in fiscal year 23-24. We have a, a smaller one now at the department, but this would expand the number of tenants um, able to take advantage of that program. Uh, also investing in one-time capital improvements for our legacy permanent housing units. Um, we've allocated 62 of our flex pool subsidies to continue our initiative to end transgender homelessness, a partnership with the Office of um, Transgender Initiatives, as well as the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. And uh, you'll also, it's not clear in the next slide, so I wanted to call out that there was an additional um, $4 million uh, adjustment made by the Board of Supervisors for flexible housing subsidies focused on women. We've converted those into rapid rehousing subsidies and those will be spent down over the next two budget years so you, you, don't, you won't see that on the next slide. Next slide, please. Um, this gives you the overall view of what changed between the adopted budget, and that's column one, and the proposed budget. Um, some things that are notable, um, we have been able to really leverage state and um, other funds um, to reduce, at least in the short term, some of our uh, permanent supportive housing operating costs. So you'll see that we don't need as, not, um, as much money as we anticipated next year in the budget, but then um, as those state funds expire, um, we'll need about $18.3 million in the following fiscal year. Uh, this also continues our um, medium term, our rapid rehousing house, um, program for adults, um, our flexible subsidy program, including those um, targeted to tenants in the Bayview, uh, adults and seniors, and the continuation of the emergency housing uh, voucher services where the subsidy for the rent is paid by the feds, but we support the uh, case management and wraparound services. Um, we're continuing to invest in the PSH equity services. This has launched within um, our providers' contracts where um, we've been able to reduce our case management to client ratio through these critical funds across our portfolio. Um, as I mentioned, we're proposing as a system improvement um, 1.5 million increasing to 2.5 million in the second year of the budget for permanent supportive housing money management. Um, to help clients um, stay on track with their rent collection, something we've heard from our providers that is critically important coming out of COVID. Um, our new strategic plan calls for additional shallow subsidies, and so we're excited to propose this new allocation as part of the Prop C budget for 60 subsidies a year. Um, and then really what we tried to do with the one-time funds was identify um, additional capital needs within our portfolio. Um, 
we have many capital needs among our legacy portfolio. And so this $10 million would go for to improve the quality and really help with unit turnover within our legacy buildings. Um, as you may recall from prior years, we um, purchased the Granada Hotel using home key funds and Prop C was the match for that capital um, improvements. We have an additional request um, to complete that rehabilitation. It's been an expensive seismic improvement program. And now as we've gotten into the building, there's a need for um, plumbing replacement throughout the building. Um, that project is slated to go to the Citywide Affordable Housing Loan Committee, but this would be um, the identified source for, for those additional repairs. And then our allocated costs, um, as we've shown you in prior years, there is, um, you know, it's shown here as an annual deficit. It's really uh, using uh, one-time fund balance for these one-time sources. But as you can see going forward, um, we're also using some fund balance in the second year of the budget to um, continue to balance the fund. Uh, this adult housing piece still um, would have at least 10% in reserves, but we've tried here to not over-reserve funding and really program those um, additional one-time sources. Next slide, um, I'll be talking about the under 30 transitional age youth housing investments. Um, very similar to last year, most of the plan is consistent with what this committee um, um, prioritized last year and the board approved. Um, there was an additional 1 million that was invested to start a bridge housing model really to align with our internal procurement schedule and some staffing constraints we're proposing to implement that model in the second year of the budget, but make an ongoing investment so it wouldn't be a one-time pilot. We would assume that that pilot's going to continue. Um, the proposal also adds one-time funds for additional TAY acquisition of buildings. I'm very excited that we are in active negotiation with um, two TAY sites um, to continue to spend down our current acquisition money and that we're under master lease with the previous two sites, the Eula Hotel and the Mission Inn that we purchased with previous home key dollars, uh, excuse me, Prop C dollars and home key dollars and Prop C, uh, some of that acquisition money will support the rehab of those sites. Um, and other good news, we're continuing to leverage those one-time state operating funds next fiscal year for the newly acquired sites. And so that takes a little um, pressure off of Prop C in the, in the short term. Um, the summary uh, you can see before you, pretty consistent with last year. I mentioned the, the additional ongoing bridge housing funding. Um, I would note that you know, we would be interested in expanding the Tay Rapid Rehousing Program. It's relatively flat here, but we are at our 12% cap. Um, currently, we're ramping up to about 115 um, slots of Tay Rapid Rehousing. And I mentioned the EULA and the mission and those ongoing operating costs. Um, year two of the budget also includes some operating funds, um, assuming that we would move forward with the purchasing of those two TAY sites. And so we've built in the operating cost in fiscal year 24-25 to start operating those sites. Next slide, Jesse. Thank you. Um, moving on to family housing investments. Um, again, we've updated um, costs and pace of implementation, but it should look very familiar to all of you. Um, we are, have 
had great success leveraging home key acquisition and operating dollars for this part of the portfolio. And our, our new project, City Gardens, which has um, 200 units, we've been able to secure housing authority vouchers that's going to offset some of the operating costs um, that won't be on Prop C, but will be funded by the housing authority. Prop C will still provide the wraparound services for the families on site, so that's very exciting. Um, we're continuing to fund the Family Rapid Rehousing Program and investing in additional family acquisition dollars. And you'll see that on the next slide, um, sort of broken out there in detail. Um, we, we do not have an ongoing deficit, I should mention, in the family and Tay housing buckets. Um, and, and again, like in adult housing, we're only reserving about 10% of the, the funds um, for any revenue weakness, but really trying to program any accumulated fund balance that we were setting aside, expecting worse news um, from the controller's office, um, to try to program those and get those out the door um, in the next two fiscal years. I'm gonna move along to um, the prevention investments. Uh, this is the area of um, the OCO budget where um, the dollars are very tight and the, the needs um, are, are higher than the dollars that we have. Um, over the next two budget cycles, we're relying heavily on one-time fund balance to maintain the existing services level. So I'm gonna walk that through with you a bit. Um, and we're still spending down prior year fund balance to continue the problem solving initiatives, including the workforce assistance initiatives for TAE, families, veterans, and justice involved adults, which I know many of you have um, been interested in that programming and been supportive of. Next slide. Um, next year's budget holds us flat with homelessness prevention and financial assistance. This is a shared implementation with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. Um, HSH administers about 12.2 million of the 25.3 shown here, and the balance that 13 million is administered by the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. Uh, we're continuing the the shallow subsidy program to really offset the um, uh, those tenants in our legacy portfolio that were paying more than 30% of their net income on rent, so that's continued here. Um, holding steady on MoCD's eviction prevention and housing stabilization program. Uh, continuing the mental health services that um, Director Kirkpatrick mentioned in the legacy DPH sites. This is coupled with behavioral health dollars that are also going to newer sites and then um, HSH's allocated cost. And you'll see here that we're, we're really relying on that $9 million in fund balance to spend down over the next two years to support this plan. Next slide. <coughs> I also wanted to sort of preview what's not in the budget. So, um, you know, after we spend down these uh, one-time program um, programming funds for problem solving and workforce assistance, I think we'll be back in front of you having some conversation about what is going to fit within the overall prevention bucket. We programmed, I think, um, more than $30 million when Prop C was first uh, unlocked for problem solving and that 
became also an initiative to do uh, workforce and um, workforce assistance for people um, receiving problem-solving services, but also within our rapid rehousing program. And so we're launching that with OEWD. Um, that will be um, programmed at 1.5 million a year to serve approximately 200 clients. Um, and the other programs here are going to our problem-solving partners um, and having those problem-solving and financial assistance conversations, which are up and running. Um, wanted to also call out the new direct cash for cash transfer pilot that is embedded here, um, and that is a partnership with Larkin Streets and um, philanthropy, as well as you know leveraging Prop C dollars. And then finally, to talk a little bit about the proposed shelter and hygiene services investments. Um, again, a very um, oversubscribed and, and tight investment plan where we're not able to set aside funds for reserve and we're using one-time money to support the plan. Um, we have been able to continue the um, Goffs, excuse me, Goff Street cabin site for two additional years. This was previously part of a safe sleep strategy. We've since, um, and we've been in the process of winding down that COVID-19 strategy, but we were able to secure a lease extension at the 33 Goff site to maintain that cabins project. Um, there's also $7 million programmed in one-time capital dollars. This was some savings that was accumulating um, it in the fund and that we want to, we, we are proposing here to build out a new cabin site in District 10. Um, we're working with the Department of Real Estate on um, searching for that site um, and have not yet secured a location, but, are, but I'm optimistic we will. Um, we're continuing to invest in the Candlestick Vehicle Triage Center. Um, we, we do need to go back to the state and try to get an extension on that site, but here in the budget, we assume that we'll be successful. Um, our Pier 94 trailer site will begin winding down. We'll be soon in front of the Port Commission asking for an extension through the end of the calendar year, but this site was always intended uh, to wind down with um, the COVID emergency, and so some of those funds have been reprogrammed to maintain Golf Street and Candlestick, and uh, we're actively working on providing transition plans for those clients um, so that everyone can be safely transitioned off the site in time for that closure. Um, and I know it's been a, finally a priority of um, this committee to um, invest in family shelter operations, and those services are continuing in the proposed plan. Um, so the next slide sort of lays that out in some detail. I did want to note just a, a budgetary thing that um, I didn't want it to cause any alarm. Um, the hotel vouchers line item here for Tay family and survivors of um, domestic violence um, looks like it's taking a cut in the budget. It is not. It's actually a timing issue. We have 1.2 million that we'll be spending down next year, along with this 900,000, and then the program will continue at 600,000 ongoing. I know that's been a priority of the committee. And that concludes my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much, Director Ridley. I'm going to go to Vice Chair D'Antonio. No, I have something to say. Um, <laughs> 
All right, thank you so much for that presentation. Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'm really excited about everything you guys are working on. Um, okay, so first on slide, uh, what is that, 18? Um, so when it says invest one-time funds in capital improvement, that's specifically the Granada, or is that any other buildings that that's gonna go into? Great question, so, um, and I, I ran through that quickly, so thank you. Um, so the capital for PSH sites uh, would really be um, leveraging uh, general fund dollars as well as some OCD funds for elevators and adding to that pool mm -hmm. um, and would be available throughout our PSH operate, um, you know, a portfolio. So we would be putting that money out the door new. That would not be for the Granada. Okay, because just, my understanding of the Prop C funds is that it can only go to fund new programs. So if we, it, the Granada was funded using Prop C funds, it would make sense to do, use Prop C funds for capital improvements, but it would not make sense in other legacy buildings, in my opinion, to use Prop C funds because that's not something new. Um, I don't know if other people feel, yeah. anyways. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be good, good to be a little bit more granular as far as like what is gonna actually use Prop C dollars and where exactly it's gonna go. Um, so uh, you brought up this money management same slide um, program several times. Um, I just would like to understand a little bit better what exactly it is. Um, is there a request for it? It sounds like you're already doing it. Is there just so much demand and not enough supply? Like what is the money actually going to like over a million dollars? What is that? Sure, I'm gonna ask my colleague to well, Simmons to address the same question. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and through the chair, Noel Simmons with HSH. The money management program is also sometimes referred to as rep payee services, if that term is familiar. It is really a mechanism by which a third party uh, collects the income of a tenant in permanent supportive housing and then cuts their 30% income share in rent directly to the landlord. It's a tool that's used for tenants who struggle for whatever reason to regularly and timely pay their rent, which of course can place them at jeopardy of being out of compliance with their lease mm -hmm. and at risk of eviction. <clears throat> So this is an increase, as Gigi said, we have a small existing program with Lutheran, uh, Lutheran services, I believe. This increase would allow us to offer money management services to up to 25% of our PSH tenants. Um, so that's what the program is. And so the one, the one million, $1.5 million is going towards like someone's salary who's gonna oversee the program. It's gonna go towards like, holding the money in some sort of account? Like what is the $1.5 million actually go towards? It, it's a contract with a community-based provider who administers the program. So yes, collects the check, cuts the checks to the landlord, maintains records of rent paid. And is there a, a big demand for this in the community? Like not from y'all's perspective, like from the people, like is it voluntary or it's once you're at risk of eviction, they say if you don't want this to happen, like you have to sign up for this program basically and we keep your money. It's, it's both, so typically it's offered as a voluntary service if a property manager observes that a tenant is having a hard time paying rent or is falling behind in rent, they can offer this um, as a voluntary service in order for, to forestall eviction proceedings. It can also be stipulated as part of a, a judgment if somebody is already in eviction proceedings, kind of a last best chance to stay if they sign up for the rep payee services. 
Um, I have a, an additional question in regards to this program. Is there a financial literacy component in regards to um, this particular program? I, I'm sorry, I just didn't quite catch the question. What component? Is, is there a financial literacy? Oh, um, because I'm um, just to expand upon yeah, that, especially for those right. who come from marginalized communities like African American, Latina, Latina X, Latino, um, or immigrant communities don't really have a lot of financial literacy that is also why they do end up in these particular mm -hmm. types of situations so my question is mm -hmm. yes that is a very good program and i do understand the need for it but is there another is there a further or, or more expansive component in regards to mitigating the situation in regards to what it sounds like is financial illiteracy Yes, a, a great question. And the rep payee program is meant to be one tool and one type of service that can be offered to a tenant who's struggling to pay rent. Um, there is also the Smart Money Coaching Program in San Francisco that offers financial literacy training, and HSH and its providers do refer to that, and we do okay, fund but the, but Smart Money does Coaching. Not have a financial literacy component within its programming within the money management program i don't not to my I mean, knowledge through from or hsh as an organization at large we fund the smart money coaching program but we don't deliver that service directly okay cool yeah that's honestly what i thought it was when i just based off the name it sounds like the smart money coaching um okay <clears throat> so my next question is also on slide 18 um, can we, can you just expand a little bit on this converting the four million add back for housing subsidies for women to rapid rehousing? How did that come to be? Um, in talking to the community, is this something that we feel like is women are going to be successful in this program? Is this rapid rehousing um, voucher? Is this for 12 months, 18 months? Um, what does this program look like? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the $4 million was an add back in the current year's budget, uh, funded with one-time dollars. The department is proposing to spend that $4 million over two fiscal years, 23-24 and 24-25. The original add back was for ongoing permanent subsidies through the flex, flex mm -hmm. housing subsidy pool. However, because these are one-time dollars and because uh, we have some structural imbalance in the housing fund, the department is proposing instead to implement this as a rapid rehousing program. Those are 24-month subsidies, which would allow us to run a two-year program and then sunset it without setting ourselves up for a financial cliff. We do know that this is an effective model. And the other thing I would point out is that um, we've been really working over the past several months to make sure that we have... Uh, a more streamlined way for households who are on a short-term rapid rehousing subsidy to transition to a permanent subsidy if after the two years in the program they are not yet ready to pay rent on their own. Okay, yeah, because I'm thinking about the women who stay at Oshun, yeah. and I just don't see this that being successful for these women. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we should be prioritizing programs based on finances versus, like, success, because it just seems like a band-aid that throws money out the door. So I would consider us to think of other programs that might be more successful. Um, Member D'Antonio, just to respond yeah. to that briefly, I, I want to be clear that when someone comes through coordinated entry and they're prioritized for a housing resource, we are attempting to match people to the best, the most appropriate resource. Our 
our permanent flex pool subsidy program serves about 30% women, so they, are, they absolutely have access to the permanent subsidy program in addition to rapid rehousing if that is a better fit for the household. Member Cunningham Denny. Yes, thank you. I have a question in regards to outreach. Um, just as an example, I have. Oh, um, actually, I'm sorry. Oh, we're going to need oh, to. Director Shimon, we're going to move to public comment. Oh, sorry. Now, are we taking public oh. comment on actually items um, four, five, and six? Could we, could we wait, wait, no, I'm still on, per I'm sorry, I'm still I'm on. Because yeah, she, they ran through everything, it's all. Under, oh, okay, okay, okay. So item four, five, and six. But like, could we halt public comment until we finish the discussion, or? I think we need to go to public comment, because we haven't done it typically. Let's just check if there's any public comment out there. <laughs> Let's check. Let's just yeah, check. Marnie. All right. Is okay. there anyone here? Okay. Oh, oh, great. Members All right. The public who wish to provide in-person public comment at this time on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. Yeah. For the record. Oh, that's it. Two minutes. Is there anyone online? Please try to change. But Hi. we have someone here in person. Hi, Hi Marnie. Hey. Hi, Marnie. She, her pronouns, Larkin Street. Thanks for having me again. Uh, just a couple things. Um, uh, I'm hoping that HSH will um, apply for the next round of home key funds and use the 10% TAY set aside to invest in more transitional interim housing uh, to stabilize youth for more success in supportive housing. Um, there's, you know, shelter and a lot of talk about supportive housing and rapid rehousing, but um, youth are struggling in um, supportive housing and rapid rehousing. We do run a lot of yeah. transitional living beds. They're incredibly vital for youth yeah. um, to set them up for success so they don't become the city's future adult homeless population. Also wanted to mention, um, the city has started uh, conservatorship. Um, there's been 13 people conserved um, and rehoused. Um, one of them is Tay, we just learned about it last week. Um, so I'm kind of bringing it back around to the need for clinical support and um, behavioral health to intersect with housing. Um, the mayor already announced this week that she wants to expand the state's conservatorship to include forced drug treatment. Um, this will have um, massive negative effects if we don't yes, bulk up our um, clinical support, uh, particularly for people on the street in, in homeless situations. Um, also wanted to mention, um, please uh, find supportive housing and other housing for youth outside of the Tenderloin. They've told us over and over again they don't want to live in the TL. Yes. We have youth who won't come to our drop-in at on Golden Gate because they see their parents on the street suffering from drug addiction. They're being solicited for sex and trafficking. The dealers won't leave them alone, and they won't come to services. Like, they don't even want to live at at the ARD anymore. They don't want to live in the TL. And if you keep buying buildings in the TL, they won't live there. And that's a major problem. So mm -hmm. thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for your public comment. Is there any public comment online? Director Schumann? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone should call 415-655-0001, access code 2498-384-8814, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note 
that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? For the records, there are no phone public comments. Thank you so much. Uh, back to Member Cunningham Denning. Um, thank you, Chair Williams. Um, goodness gracious, I, went, I wish we wouldn't have taken a break because now I have <laughs> more questions. Goodness gracious. Um, but definitely needed um, to have um, public comment. So um, my question was in regards, um, yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. Come back up. My question Direct. was in regards to outreach strategies um, that um, the HSH and, um, um, undergoes in regards to finding the, um, the individuals or the community members that are in need of the services that HSH provides. Um, like what are the strategies for outreach um, and for visibility so that people know that these services are being offered by, um, by this agency? Um, just to give an example, this morning and as, as I was getting ready to come in today for this meeting, um, I received an email from a youth who is in the San Francisco Unified School District, 17 currently, about to turn 18. They have nine members in their household. Their father just passed away um, Sunday and they are, if I'm not mistaken from what was told, in the email, four years in the rears, their parents are, four years in the rears with their rental payments, which is about $70,000. So if a person was to, with that particular type of situation, this is an entire family. HSH does have funding um, earmarked for Tay and families. How is how's an individual supposed to get in contact with HSH in order to access these resources if they don't know that they are available? Thank you for that question. Um, we can always do more in the way of making the public aware of the services that are available. Um, all of HSH's services are on our website with contact phone numbers, email addresses, brick and mortar addresses to access services. Um, we do have uh, what we call resource cards that are kind of one pagers describing our services and how to access them. We try to have those across multiple service locations. Of course, our providers who are on the street providing services, our ambassadors, and able to educate members of the public. And what we find is that our clients themselves um, learn about from other people through word of mouth about available services. So we try to use multiple channels. Um, certainly welcome to any suggestions about how we can do better. Awesome. Um, you, I, I was like, I have a suggestion sure. that I've been talking about forever because I experience youth as um, homelessness as a youth and then as a family, and I will say, um, as a youth, uh, I did not know about any services. There should be things up in the schools. You need to be telling the schools to give people information because I thought all I could do was sleep on the bus or sleep in parks or sleep at people's houses. Like, I didn't know that Huckleberry existed. I didn't know none of that. And word of mouth, sure, that's lightweight, reliable, but there's so much stigma. Like, no youth is out here being like, oh, I'm not going home at the end of the night. Like, I have nowhere to go. Like, no one wants to tell their friends that. And I failed to mention that the youth that is in question is TGNC. They are transgender nonconforming. Um, and they don't, they came to our agency, or my agency, the Taja Coalition, because we our primary focus is within the TGNC community. So they were referred to us through, I believe, a school counselor. Um, and again, as I stated earlier, one of the things that I did want to um, touch on with this particular individual was 
HSH because, you know, working with OCOA, I know, you know, a lot of different types of programs that are available in the city. But again, how I, mean, I, I can direct mm -hmm. individuals to those particular resources who are in need of them, they come to us. But if they are, if they did not have me as a, as a conduit to get to those resources, how would they be able to be sourced to them? And especially when speaking of the TGNC community, the transgender community, there are a lot of disparaging stories that I've heard um, from various community members um, when engaging entities that are not specifically trans, you know, um, specific, that, they're, that their overall mission isn't trans-specific when they go or when they try to um, engage with other entities, um, a lot of which that are under the HSH umbrella, they have been met with various forms of, um, I'm going to just say, trauma-inducing um, experiences that, as, um, as was just exclaimed, that, that causes the likelihood of that person not engaging with those sources and going and sleeping in the streets and exposing themselves to violence and other dangerous um, predicaments, especially within, when we're talking about the Tay population, with the intersectionality of LGBTQIA, and then when you add in the subset of transgender individuals, it gets really, you know, um, convoluted. And again, my question, um, maybe we can explore at another time, at a later time, is the strategy in regards to outreaching to those individuals who don't even look at any of your agencies as a resource for them because they feel as though, um, and this is, this has been a while since I've heard this, but it was a couple of years ago where an individual came to our agency re, um, asking for services, stating that they, were, they, that they were referred to us by an agency within HSH because they were told that our agency was specifically for them because they were transgender, which we all know is not true. So just wanna make sure that we do touch on that to make sure that those, um, you know, those particular things are addressed. And again, so I can have more clarification um, for myself um, and to be able to provide to my community in regards to being able to access those resources adequately. Yeah, thank you so much, Member Kenningham Denham. I'm very happy to continue that conversation offline. Just briefly, Director Whitley referred to the fact that we're releasing our five-year strategic plan today. One of the things we're really proud about is that we really centered the voices of people with lived experience in developing that plan. And much of what you are saying is an echo of what we heard from the community as well, needing to be more visible, more culturally competent, more trauma-informed. And so those are all things that we will be working on. Awesome, thank you. Um, Chair Williams. Member Friedenbach. Yeah. So I just want to note, just as a general thing, and I think like this is this is kind of ongoing frustration. So a lot of the recommendations that were made through the liaisons originally, I don't. Is there any of them that were taken into consideration? So there was the women's um, thing that Julia brought up. There was a number of different recommendations that we talked about, and they're just it. This seems it, it's a little like I. I 
I'm not really interested in wasting my time. Let me just put it that way. Um, or yours. Um, the bridge housing, once again, that was something that's been a priority of this group and you guys put it off to 2025. Um, the, um, I was happy to see the shallow subsidies, so that was great. Um, so I guess that was the one that was, that was included in here. Um, I thought we had more room for family investments. I'm not really sure what is going on there. Um, maybe you guys, so you guys added, added stuff to the family or do we not have, I can't, I'm sorry, this slide is so small, it's impossible to read. So do we not, we don't have extra money in family housing anymore? Um, I can address that, Gigi Whitley, through the chair. Um, you know, I think when we met with the liaisons, we did not have the information about the revenue forecasting. So to be totally transparent, I mean, from my perspective, we were being very conservative and we're continuing in this plan to be relatively conservative. And so you'll see in the family, you know, example that um, member Friedenbach that We've programmed, you know, that additional balance on an ongoing basis into a one-time acquisition strategy rather than trying to um, expand the programs where we have other cost pressures. And so I didn't do as well of a job as DPH as laying out the five-year picture. I'd be happy to bring that back to you so that you can see sort of what the pressures are on the fund. Oh, okay, because I, I remember pretty clearly when we got, after we got the number information, that fa the family category was the area that we did have <coughs> ongoing money um, that was available. And so it seems like there was a policy decision to move that over to acquisitions as like thinking that, anyway, I, I yeah, I, I guess we've got to look at that. I'd like to look at that again. Um, doesn't seem like those slides are up on the controller's website. I was trying to find them. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Jessica. Um, and then it seems like on the shelter thing that, so a new thing came up since we talked about new cabins in D10. Well, um, I think it was pretty clearly articulated that the, um, that the Pier 94 trailer was a, was a priority. Um, and so... I know that you need to get permission from the port to continue at that site, um, but that is, you know, that seems like that's possible to do. I didn't see anything besides political will to make that happen. And then shifting over to cabins, does that mean we're not doing the D9 cabins where we have a site? And then we go through a process of trying to find a site, and then that takes like two years to find a site. And I just know we went through this whole rigor more trying to find the safe parking site. That's ending and you still haven't identified a site for that. And so I'm a little bit concerned about like putting money over in this category to something that we don't have a site for that may not happen when we could use it for something right now. And so, and I just want to reiterate, like when we did the site visits, that site had the best um, feedback from people. Those trailers are really nice. And um, I think a lot more comfortable than a cabin that we'd have to build. And if we're still at $100,000 per cabin, we already have the trailers. Anyway, it just, I'm not understanding the thinking there. Sorry. Um, just would love to hear more about that. 
Sure, I, yeah. I can try to address those um, in order. So the Pier 94 site, as, as you know, is owned by the port. It's intended for maritime use. Um, we are going forward with the, to the Port Commission that has been a strong partner here, but from the beginning, you know, we knew that the site would end when the local emergency orders were lifted, and it's our expectation that the Port Commission um, wants to wind that down. We have, you know, been pleased with the success of the site and are looking for ways to preserve the trailers for other sites, whether it be Candlestick or um, looking for a site with cabins that could also um, be large enough to have some vehicular space. Um, we do have a letter of intent into one site, so that's moving along, and uh, we're working on another letter of intent um, in D10 so that we have multiple sites in the queue and can move forward aligned with the safe sleep sites and the RV site closing. Um, but, you know, we at Noel, correct me, but we, we don't have another path to extend our time there at the pier and so are, are looking for a site as close as possible to sort of sustain that model that could have both cabins and vehicles. I, I thought it would, what, what was stated at the meeting was is that we get free, we got free rent during the emergency and that we had to pay a million dollars in rent to the port, but not that it was a done deal, that it was like an absolute, like, absolute has to end at the end of the fiscal year. It was like we had to get the port to say yes to it. So what, what shifted? My understanding is that the, the port has decided that that is more appropriate use for maritime use. And in the lease negotiations, we will be paying starting in March um, through the end of December. So it's not so much the rent, but that um, we need to vacate the site so that by was the end a of the calendar year. at the port commission. There will there was an informational session, I believe, on the 10th, and there'll be a hearing. Uh, the Port Commission meets on the 25th of April. So that would be the opportunity to share that perspective with the Port Commission. Okay. Uh, yeah, I feel like kind of like from a collaborative perspective, like letting people know this stuff is going on because then we could organize for that stuff and we could put pressure on the court, the, the port to extend it. Um, and so it's just a very different set of information than we got at our last liaison meeting. Significantly different. Member Friedenbach, if I could address that since I was at that liaison meeting, we did advocate with the port for a two-year extension to Site F and learned relatively recently and after the liaison meeting that that was not the Port Commission's direction. Um, we were very disappointed to learn that, but as Gigi said, they are very eager to return that site to maritime use, and the Commission will be hearing that on April 25th. The other thing I wanted to note is that Partially in response to feedback from this uh, committee, we are now actively pursuing an extension at the Candlestick VTC, which is our other trailer site, which was also slated to wind down or is currently slated to wind down by the end of this calendar year. But we have an active request into the State Parks Commission to see if we can extend at that site. Okay. Thank you, Member Friedenbach. We'll go to Vice Chair D'Antonio. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. I just, I'm going to. I had more stuff on the housing side, but I want to follow up with what Jenny was saying because I also had some comments on this. So yeah, I would say the trailer program is the most successful program that we have as far as like the people that stay there actually enjoy it. Um, I would say too, beyond just when we went out 
for our liaison meetings um, last year and, and did that work at the trailers and talked to folks, like being someone who's very involved in D10 and in Bayview all the time, like in Hunters Point all the time, like the community likes that site. Like it's not, so it should be a priority. Um, as far as the cabins, like th that doesn't fully make sense to me. I'm gonna be honest. Like we're building temporary like units, right? That cost what, $100,000 per cabin? Um, I feel like there's a lot of politics behind the cabins. I feel like there's people who are doing that work who have a lot of political power. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of these cabins pop up. Personally, this is my own opinion. Um, but that's not what people want, and that's not what we've seen be the most successful. And I feel like it's just throwing money away. Like, it's kind of the same premise as when we built public housing. It was all supposed to be temporary, and now it's all falling apart. So I would just push for the trailer site, and I feel like maybe, and this might seem really far out there, but why can't we just eminent domain that land like if Elon Musk can do it for rockets in Texas like why can't we do it for housing <laughs> um and I think there have been buildings that have been eminent domain so land definitely makes Almost. sense yes in South Market um so these are the conversations we should be having we should be pushing a hard line um and I for one am not here for the cabins that cost a hundred thousand dollars that like I'm just not here for it personally. Um, okay, so that was my little spiel on that that I had written down. Um, and then, sorry, back to the housing piece. I know Marnie, when she, uh, they came up here, they were speaking to this about rapid rehousing. Um, how successful has rapid rehousing been, and what does retention look like for Tay? And how do you measure success, actually, should I say, in the rapid rehousing programs? Uh, Member D'Antonio, we'll have to get back to you on a retention rate. I don't know that off the top of my head. Okay. Um, I don't know if Marnie has a sense of that, given that Larkin is our lead on our, our major Tay rapid rehousing initiative rising up. Um, but we'd be happy to track that down for so you. So I think Marnie wants to come to the dais. And I do want folks to be aware of time. We're going to start moving I'm sorry I have like three more points after this no but worries. I'll just go I'll just say it okay so um, very quickly um, you struggle with it especially coming out of the pandemic um, it's a lot of times there it's the only thing that they get courting entry is not working for Tay this is very high level um, so they get stuck into rapid rehousing they don't have time to stabilize from the street so there's all this like get make sure they stabilize, deal with mental health, whatever substance use, and then get them a job, take over your rent. And it's just, it's not a great model for no. youth. If they're either in a shelter or on the street, or hopefully in one of our transitional living programs, but usually they're just prioritized for rapid rehousing. That's why we keep advocating for transitional or interim to then get them successfully in rapid rehousing. Like I get the spirit behind rapid rehousing. It's, it's great for the right client. Right. So, um, and I'll, I can send you, I can send you the report. Yes, thank you. Um, Cause I will say, and the reason I'm so passionate about this and I'm sorry if I come off in any type of way other than just like caring about the community, this conversation around rapid rehousing we've been having for over a decade. 
And I guess sometimes I get tired of having the same conversations over and over. Like, it, it doesn't work for single moms. It doesn't work for youth. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, Range yeah. of housing And then options. going through coordinated Range entry, there's this conversation of, yeah. well, then people who it's not good for them won't be given it. But if that's all there is, which most of the time it is, that's all they're getting. So same thing around the conversation about the women um, at back. So sorry, I'm going to move on from that. Um, thank you, Marnie. So on slide 23, I had a question about why does um, the operating cost for permanent supportive housing hold on, vary so much um, on line item three. So why does it go from 6.4 to 2.8 and then back up again to 3.2? Thank you. That question I can't answer. Um, so uh, as I mentioned in my presentation, um, we've been very successful in leveraging those state home key operating funds. So when we built the budget last year at 7.4 million, we didn't yet have confirmation that those funds would come in. Now they have, so we only need 4.5. And then it goes back up as those funds expire, but we're also adding operations in anticipation of acquiring two additional TAY okay. buildings. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, I, I'm sorry. I, I just have a few, a few more points. I just want, we also have public comment after. Oh, okay, Thanks. sorry. Um, okay, on slide 25, what, and sorry, maybe this is, um, I don't know, bear with me. So for homeless prevention and financial assistance versus eviction prevention and housing stabilization, so what is the difference between those two? I turn it over to Noel to, uh, you know, this is our partnership with MoCD, so. Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to start with that. And then if Anne is still here from OCD and wants to add, she can feel free to do so. Um, our prevention funds are uh, invested in two different primary strategies, eviction prevention and targeted homelessness prevention. Uh, the targeted homelessness prevention is jointly administered by HSH and MoCD, and it is targeted at households who are at the very highest risk of actually becoming homeless if they don't receive an intervention. And so there's an assessment based on a number of research-informed vulnerability criteria to determine who gets assistance, um, and the assistance is up to $7,000 to pay for things like back rent, security deposit, move in um, and other forms of flexible assistance. The eviction prevention investment is administered by MoCD, and so I don't want to speak out of school here, but just briefly, that includes uh, strategies like uh, tenant right to counsel is a big one. So once Legal you've been advocacy. actually given an eviction notice? Generally, once you already have an eviction notice, okay. but also, you know, legal support to forestall eviction. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, and then we don't need to answer this right now, but the, my last little piece, and maybe if you guys come back, you could just expand on this. I was just overall confused by the problem solving and workforce assistance um, on slide 26. Um, I just need way more information. How many people is it going to serve? What are they doing? What is problem solving? Is it giving somebody 200 bucks? Like, what is workforce assistance? Like, I just need more information, but we, you don't need to answer that today because I know other people have questions. So, Okay. So I do want to recognize there are uh, two members for public comment that are on the line, and I'll go to member Cunningham-Denning. I'm very excited by public comment, as you guys can see. <laughs> I know. It's always, so it's always great. We're here in person. Um, so uh, Director Shimon. 
Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone should call 415-655-0001, access code 2498-384-8814, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? I don't know what else to do. You wanna take those? Hello, caller. Yes. My name is Francisco da Costa. And when I get some time, I always uh, like to participate in your deliberations. See his face, though. Pop up. What you have to understand is that our, our city is in dire straits. And the people who are most suffering are not getting any help. And what we are doing is we are talking in generalities. So there are some people within months they are going to die. There are others who are exposed to the inclement weather and slowly die. And you all are talking about some of the programs that cost millions of dollars. And a lot of these people who are working, who have these programs, got a lot of money during the pandemic. Millions of dollars. Imagine, you know, renting a tent for $80,000 a year. Imagine a bed in a navigation center costing as much as 35000 a year. We need to get a grip on what is really happening. San Francisco is in dire straits. And the city departments cannot do a thorough needs assessment. Thank you very much. For the records, there are no additional public uh, comments by phone. This concludes public comment section for this agenda item. HR public commenters, uh, Member Cunningham, Danny. Thank you. Um, really quickly, I just wanted to touch back on slide 20, um, the proposed transitional age youth housing investments. Um, if we could just talk about the time frame in regards to those investments. Um, I guess these are going towards um, uh, property allocation. Am I correct in saying that? Thank you for the question. Um, all of the programs um, on this list have been 
uh, in some stage of the implementation. So the department has been very successful in using Prop C dollars to spend down our acquisition dollars and leverage an additional 200 million from the state. So in the PSH operation, those are for buildings that we acquired over the last year that are starting to lease up and operate um, under um, the master lease arrangements with our community-based nonprofits. Um, the rapid rehousing program, which we had some discussion on, is a continuation of the Rising Up initiative, which was a public-private partnership. The private side provide the workforce. The city side helped provide the subsidy. And, um, you know, you, you heard from Marnie about um, uh, some of the concerns with that program, um, it did launch right before COVID. Um, and so we're continuing here to invest in it. We've talked a little bit about the bridge housing, which hasn't started yet, which we're proposing to defer until we re-procure our trans transitional housing taste services next year. And then um, PSH equity has really been a strategy to um, increase case management support within our TAE permanent supportive housing to get closer to a one to 20 uh, ratio case manager to clients. Um, acquisition would be further strategies to acquire additional properties that would then be supported hopefully through Prop C on the operating side. Awesome, I just have a follow-up question. Of course. Um, so in regards to that particular strategy, what, um, so, cause from what from what I gather, you're it's like the tape particular the tape component is already in implementation. Is that correct? For the most part, yes, with the exception of the bridge housing model I mentioned. Okay, um, can you give any um, uh, any information around staffing? For example, um, the staffing. Um, protocol for like the Tay housing um, services that you guys are providing. Um, are they SOGI trained, sexual orientation, gender identity trained um, individuals since, especially when you're talking about Tay, um, that, that that particular demographic has a myriad of different types of individuals who fall within that particular category, especially those who are, as we were, as we discussed earlier in previous slides, are exceedingly now LGBTQIA more predominantly so the transgender TGNC community. Um, just, I just want to make sure that I do, if you have that information, like what is their strategies around staffing, training? Are they is that a is that something that they're um, that they have within their lens to you know make sure that they're keeping an eye on? Thank you for the question. I, I think I can follow up on the staffing and training model for those particular providers. You know, our, our overarching strategy is that we do, um, you know, program these funds with community-based providers in part to have that lens and cultural sensitivity. Um, we've been circumspect about calling it out, but we are planning that our next acquisition would be um, a very much focused on um, transgender, gender nonconforming building exclusively for Tay. Um, you know, we, we don't want to sort of over publicize that given 
um, the violence um, experienced yes, in the yep. community, but that is sort of the intent and not funded through Prop C, but through our other part of our budget has been this Ending Trans Homelessness Initiative in partnership with OTI. And a lot of that initiative is trying to build capacity amongst our um, OTI serving, you know, providers build their capacity and, but I, I think you make a great point about making sure it's a lens and a training expectation throughout our system, um, given the needs of, of Tay who are experiencing homelessness. So I really appreciate the feedback. Thank you so much, Member Cunningham Denning. We're gonna Member Catalano. Thank you, I'll try to be brief. I think I have four And actually, points. Member Catalano, we wanted to talk about prevention at this point yeah. as well. Perfect, so, thank you. So um, is there additional information that you would like to share Director Whitley in regards to prevention? I think I can maybe ask some questions that oh, would direct us in that way, yeah. if that's okay. Um, first, I just wanted to note across all of these buckets, I think um, there is a lot I see reflected in here uh, uh, in increasing diversity of options across the system for meeting the diverse needs of people at risk of experiencing homelessness. So I want to just reflect that. I think that also aligns with the pieces of your 90-page strategic plan that I've had a chance to review today. Um, and I do think where you see differences from what the liaisons or what this committee has um, requested and, and the information that we've gotten from the community, I think you'll see that come out in the committee's recommendations, right? Some areas of difference where we'd like to see potentially a different route for investments or a different prioritization, but appreciate what's been incorporated, um, which uh, Member Friedenbach pointed out, sort of some of the pieces that have and have not been. Um, also wanted to note, I think, we on prevention and problem solving, we have like uh, a really significant shortfall coming up in the next couple of years, and that is most dramatically represented in the problem solving and workforce category. My understanding with the workforce pieces is that's both for within problem solving and more, more broad than problem solving. Um, and I know that work has been slower to launch, and so I think we'll have, it'd be, we have to have those challenging conversations about um, what, what is coming, what sort of is bearing fruit from there, what lessons are being learned, and how or whether to continue funding that, and particularly in problem solving. I also wanted to just note that this committee has not had a presentation on problem solving in a minute, I think. Um, there was a presentation, um, by Julieta Barsaglioni from your team um, about targeted homelessness prevention, which was super informative, and we specifically did not focus on problem solving. So I think the current iteration of that program, um, we have more uh, learning to do, and that hopefully will inform what we think about that future financial cliff. Mm. Um, so I think just on the prevention investments, I, I generally support what is here. I'm still concerned about the mental health services um, and PSH, which I thought were getting phased out and getting fully covered by um, DPH. So that remains a question for me um, on prevention. Um, and then the only other thing I wanted to add that's not specific to prevention is just to flag what you noted, um, Director Whitley, about the housing authority vouchers um, for, for city gardens. That feels huge. Um, and I would love to figure out how, if there are opportunities for more housing authority um, support for some of the pieces of the strategic plan and some of the pieces to kind of leverage those dollars and those resources for this work in the, in the context of the overall budget situation. Thank you for your questions and comments. And just to piggyback on what you were saying about our strategic plan, um, you know, over the five-year period, it calls, calls for over a $600 million investment that far exceeds what Prop C can provide. 
And, um, you know, when we modeled that, that was really an assumption that prop, so many of the Prop C investments would continue, but that we need to do more as a community to meet those goals. So it's certainly not intended to be a solution here for the city's strategic plan, but a piece of, you know, that diversity of options you mentioned. Um, thank you for the reminder about problem solving. I had thought um, our staff had presented on that, but I think that would be a great follow-up item. Um, we've done a lot of work in sort of fleshing out what the problem-solving um, providers are doing um, and the complement of um, resources there, including the direct cash transfer program, so we can take that as a follow-up. Um, just to address your question on the PSH mental health services, you know, um, aligned with um, direction that we got from council and concerns raised by the committee that um, the legacy sites that we wanted to serve with mental health services would not be an appropriate fit for those behavioral health dollars. All of the new expansion in behavioral health for PSH is embedded in the DPH model, but this recognizes that there are still legacy tenants um, where DPH is providing those services that we wanted to enhance. And so there's a piece of the funding that still comes from prevention. I think that's a policy conversation the committee could revisit in the future. Um, and then in terms of the housing authority, yes, it was uh, huge, hugely great news. Uh, that doesn't make sense, but just wonderful um, news, not only to secure a 200-unit family building, that's brand new construction, but then to be able to leverage the housing authority vouchers, we would like to do more um, and you know, are continuing to build a really strong partnership with the housing authority. Tanya Ledeju and her team have been um, big support since the department was started. So would, would love to get any advice and strategies how we can do more there given the federal constraints around housing vouchers. Thank you so much, Director Raleigh, and thank you so much to all the members. We are at time. It is 3.45 on a Friday, and <laughs> keeping it real. Um, so public comment, Director Shimon. <laughs> We're really having a spicy meeting today. I love it. <laughs> We're in person. Members of the like public who, yeah. who wish Get to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. It's Friday. <laughs> For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone should call 415-655-0001, access code 2498-384-8814, then pound. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments uh, on the phone? Hello, caller. Hello. Um, this is Eliana Binder uh, from Glide. I'm the policy associate in our Center for Social Justice. And um, I'm sorry to keep you any longer on a Friday afternoon, but I just wanted to emphasize the need for prevention resources. And um, regardless of the you know, con concerns mentioned about the specific finances for prevention, 
I would just urge you, um, those of you at HSH and then also in the commission to not let up on the importance of prevention um, in the 2022 point in time count. HSH estimated that for every one household the city was able to house, approximately four became homeless. And I've definitely not forgotten about that um, statistic since I read it. And we see it at Glide every day. Um, this past year, clients requesting rental assistance increased almost 70%. And we also gave out more than three times the number um, or the amount of funds that we had dispersed the previous year. Um, we were so, you know, overwhelmed by the need that we, we raised private funds to pilot a new program um, to provide rental assistance for the many clients not qualifying for other programs. Um, and since the launch of that pilot um, in March 2022, we provided 89 people with 90 payments of rental assistance totaling over $200,000. However, we're unable to meet that continued and, and high demand for that, that those types of resources. Um, so, and I know other providers are facing similar challenges and the need for flexible emergency assistance, rental assistance, um, the need is very high. So I just wanted to emphasize the importance and urgent need for homelessness prevention and urge creativity um, in trying to uh, address the the financial constraints for that for that particular category, thank you. Director Shimon, is there any additional public comment? Uh, for the records, there are no additional phone public comments, and this concludes public comment section for this agenda item. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to thank um, Director Simmons, Director Whitley, um, Director Kirkpatrick, and everyone, uh, and Anne as well, um, for joining us today. And thank you for all your hard work. This is a hard, tough, tough issue in our city. And I just love that we're all working together and, and being collegial and just really diving into everything we need to do to address these issues. I wanna thank my colleagues for all your hard work. This is volunteer board, just wanna say that. And this is a huge, huge issue. And I just am so appreciative. On our next meeting, our regular board meeting, we will be voting on our recommendations uh, to the mayor and to the Board of Supervisors um, in this area. And so I really look forward to the liaisons meeting in between this meeting um, and our regular meeting and discussing some of the differences that we have in terms of priorities and seeing if we can come to some consensus of where we are. We may not agree on where we are, but I know we've always, over the past few years, have been able to still understand where we're coming from. So I appreciate everyone. I appreciate everyone's hard work and have a great weekend. Yeah. Enjoy. Thanks, All right. Williams. So is there a motion to oh. adjourn? I said, oh. Oh. <laughs> so moved. So moved. Yes. Moved by member Friedenbach, seconded by Vice Chair D'Antonio is, can we do the roll call? Director Shimon. Absolutely. Uh, member Catalano. Yes. Member Cunningham Denning. Yes. Vice Chair D'Antonio. Yep. Member Friedenbach. Yes. Officer Ledbetter, absent. Chair Williams. Yes, and we are adjourned on 3.51 p.m. Thank you, everyone.